Distributing the future broadcast July 24, 2006, going digital. The future is going to be bigger than the past. There's going to be more happening. Connected systems, connected devices, connected data. What can we do in that world that will be interesting, powerful, and useful? Changing the world through capturing the knowledge of innovators. The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. Welcome to Distributing the Future from O'Reilly Media. I'm Daniel Steinberg, and each week we bring you the technology and the people behind what you use now and what you'll use next. What are the skills that every young person should have before they go off to college? C.J. Rayhill and John Udell talk a bit about how schools are changing. Michael Olin talks about shooting raw and has some surprising stories about Ansel Adams. When I was in grad school, I had an epiphany that should have come many years earlier. That was, if you read the material in the book before coming to class, the professor's lecture will be so much richer. Well, as a teacher, I adapted and created techniques for forcing my students to come to class better prepared. And now InfoWorld's John Utell takes it a step further. He says, now that schools are providing podcasts of lectures, why should the students have to be in a classroom at all when they're listening to the lecture? Why not have the students listen to the lecture on their own time and then use that valuable class time for discussion, questions, interaction, for digging deeper? Udell was kind enough to let us edit down an interview he did with O'Reilly's CIO, C.J. Rahill, that he posted on his Friday podcast. The two talked a bit about Safari U, but really, they focused on how technology is changing what we teach in school and how we teach it. Rahill also says we need to consider the skills that we send youngsters to school with. Has your middle schooler learned typing? How do you search? Finance? She begins by looking at how the market has been changing for book publishers. The world is kind of pushing uh, us as publishers, especially as reference and technology-type publishers, down to the free and atomic. Mm-hmm. And I think the challenge for us is figuring out, are there different ways of repackaging what we do and reusing what we do to provide value-added services? Mm-hmm. So about three years ago, we noticed that the other publishers who you know, were much larger than we were got nice little bumps twice a year when the school year starts. Mm-hmm. And we had traditionally not looked at the academic market as, as something to consciously go after, although... Which we, I think surprises a lot of people because it would seem like a natural fit for a whole bunch of different computer science kind of courses. Obviously, people are, are using your books anyway. So it, Yeah, they do, but here's, here's what we found out. What we found out was that, as you well know, John, our books are very practical, right? So... When it comes to like tech schools or the JCs or community colleges where they're teaching very, very practical level type of, of technology courses, our books were uh, adopted more readily and adopted more readily as primary text. Yeah. But what we found in like the four-year colleges and things like that, um, they teach a lot of theory. And our books and content aren't really about theory. Um, they're about the practical applications of theory, although they do cover it. I'm not sure that that speaks necessarily well for those universities. <laughs> um, I, you know, I somewhat agree, but I think uh, you know, once folks get the theory, they, the schools kind of leave it up to the students to um, look at ways to apply it, or they do it more in experiential type teaching. You know, give them a project where they have to apply it. I, I, that's a serious question. As a matter of fact, I have a friend, Greg Wilson. He's at a Canadian university, and he's been very concerned with the fact that people are going through these computer science curricula and not absorbing 
all sorts of basic skills that have to do with being competent in the software realm, having to do with understanding CVS or subversion or project management or the social aspects of negotiating a specification or the general the general very real problem of how you dive into a code base that's new to you and learn your way around and get competent working in it. Which is usually the first jobs you get, right? I mean, you're, you're thrown into a system that already exists and you're told, you know, you're going to do maintenance work in it. Yes. And most yes. of these um, folks coming out of, you know, university are are used to just building their own thing from the ground up and looking at their own code. Werner Vogels, who's the CTO of Amazon, made the point recently. Actually, he was interviewed, I think, in ACMQ, interviewed by Jim Gray, actually, the Microsoft Mm. researcher. And it's a a fascinating piece. Uh, Among other things, he talks about how people come out of colleges with a theoretical background, but that there are no colleges that have infrastructures that resemble Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or or its peers. And so in terms of learning to deal with galactic scaling issues in the real world, there, there's just no way other than to be in the environment. Um, well, that's why I think also interning and mentoring is such a critical part of, uh, you know, folks going through that curriculum as well. Yeah. I believe it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, getting back to um, kind of where we were with it, we just got in contact with literally hundreds of what we call foos, friends of O'Reilly, um, who were in the academic setting, everything from four-year universities to community colleges, adjunct faculty, and also corporate trainers, mm-hmm. um, you know, folks who are independent and go out and train in the, in the corporate environments. And we just conducted just hundreds of interviews and very open interviews just saying, you know who we are, you know what our content is like, um, you know that our, our brand recognition isn't as, as visible as we'd like it to be in the higher education uh, market, and, and for that matter, sometimes in the corporate training market. So what could we do as a publisher to help you? And after combi- compiling all of the interview results, it was very clear to us that there were three or four very common themes that were coming back. One was they wanted it to be somebody else's problem, right? <laughs> yeah. They wanted one place to go for really good quality content, that they could put together for their students and not have all the hassles of trying to get, you know, uh, fair rights use and all that kind of stuff for it. Mm-hmm. The second thing that they told us was that they wanted the ability to mix and match that content in their own pedagogical way and deliver that to students in either or both a print and or online format. And a recent survey that was just completed, uh, I believe, by the National Association for College Bookstores found that over 80% of students still preferred print which was surprising to me given that, you know, the, the uh, upcoming generations were kind of brought up in an online world. Well, there's really two different modes of absorbing information. One is search tactically, right? And the other mm-hmm. is kind of strategically step back and take in a chunk of stuff. And in the latter mode, I think most people would rather read print. I know that I do, but the more and more I watch my, you know, nieces and nephews and the, and the younger folks interact with each other, I was just surprised to hear that. And then the third thing we heard was that, you know, they've spent a lot of time and effort in putting together their own materials for teaching. And the ability to incorporate those in, you know, in these compilations or, or uh, uh, pedagogies that they're putting together was critical. Um, and by the way, they also said that the ability to share all of those playlists 
uh, with other educators in some kind of you know socialized network would be an advantage to them as well. Yeah, they're really trying to bring some good value to the students instead of paying you know one hundred thirty dollars for a textbook, which is the average cost these days. <laughs> yep. Um, so what they do is they create you know kind of a 150, 200 page uh, primary, absolutely necessary reading print book. And that's the stuff that they want the student to walk away with and keep on the reference shelf. Okay. And there won't necessarily be parallel access to that 250 pages online. Exactly. Um, and what they'll do is they'll create this syllabus of all the recommended reading. Right. You know, because you know as well as I do that the students, we're lucky the students buy the primary textbook, yet alone all the recommended reading, right? Right. So they put all the recommended reading in a syllabus, and they can, you know, they can have a thousand pages of stuff in the syllabus piece because right. it's timed access. Boy, I, uh, in so many ways, and this is just one of them, I, I would so love to be a college student today with the tools and the technologies that are available. You know, the, the notion of being in class for 50 minutes to absorb this lecture when I could be out on my bicycle absorbing that same lecture, you know, not as a substitute for the class time, but wouldn't I rather have heard the lecture and then shown up in class for the thing that face-to-face interaction with other people and the professor really ought to be about, which is given that the content has been delivered and I've thought about it, now I've got these questions. Let's, you know, let's drill down on the points that I didn't understand so well, or let's have a follow-on conversation. Right, or the, or the instructor questioning the students to try and figure out whether or not they've comprehended it, it or not. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, well, I, I actually know that, that this is going to trigger a sea change, and it's also going to be just incredibly threatening to a lot of, a lot of people who are teaching now. I saw a little bit of this um, a couple of weeks ago. I was at a university and actually gave a keynote talk to their instructional technologist uh, and and faculty teams, um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about these things, and you can see them starting to grapple with the idea that wow, you know, there there, there really are better ways for me to use my FaceTime with students than what we have been doing for all these years. We're trying to go in and change the habits of you know computer science and information technology folks, right? You'd think at the very least that those would be the the easiest folks to transition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you still get a lot of, you know, I've seen unbelievable uh, things where they've come back even on our search and said, hey, I'm searching for this and I can't find anything. And you go look and, and, and look to see how they're searching mm-hmm. and what they're doing with search, which you would think is something, you know, at least in the higher education area that they would be a little more literate about. Yeah. And it's amazing to me. It's yeah. like, well, you might try and do, you know, <laughs> this little thing. And it comes back with exactly the information you're looking for. There is a tendency for people to assume, well, anyone under the age of such and such just naturally grocks all of this. And that's not true. There's a whole lot that kids, high school and college age and beyond, don't know. If I had a kid that was in you know, middle school to high school range right now, I would, I would love to see as a part of, you know, right alongside the three R's, right, um, I, I would love to see three different topic areas be just absolutely required before they um, graduate from high school. One is typing. Yeah. Touch typing. Yeah. But I have to say, looking back, that was the best thing I could have done. Me too. We did it in junior high school. And, right. Uh, and, and then the second thing is search. Yep. Learning how I can find information on my own, because that is the best way to self-educate. Yes. And 
equipping them before they get out of high school with knowing how to find information and being the best searchers out there yes. will absolutely equip them much better than their counterparts when they get out there. And then the third, in my mind, is personal finance. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> the fact that we don't have that as a you know, yes. primary component of our educational system is just sad to me. It's, it's actually scandalous. Um, mm-hmm. You're right on all counts. And on the second one, a friend of mine here in New Hampshire who runs a software company and I had dinner not long ago and his point was he just hired a new programmer and he said, you know, I don't, I don't care that he knows Java or this or that operating system or this or that database uh, product, right? I mean, what I care about is that he can learn those things quickly. You know, I'm not the, the geekiest hardware person in the world, but if somebody can show me a little vcast or, mm-hmm. or give me a step-by-step instruction piece to it, mm-hmm. hell yeah, I'll take the cover off. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll give it a try, especially if it's something that I really want to have happen. I, I think that whole trend and resurgence of that is, is really coming to the forefront. So how do you see that getting woven together with the book stuff at some point? Um, oh, I think multimedia is where the world is going. And the fact that I can customize my learning in the way that fits my style, that's the ultimate for me. Um, I, I definitely think VCasts are the next podcast generation, especially with you get more and more of the you know iPod video stuff and, and those kinds of players out there. Mm-hmm. And you look at iTunes U. I mean, they're starting to do uh, the lectures being taped and things and, and being able to be provided to students um, so you don't even need to go to the classroom experience to, you know, see the lecture of your of your instructor. I suppose that a lot of the bottleneck now is on the production side. Is in other words, if if the stuff were available, people would be snapping it up. But uh, well, just to to take our situation, I mean, it would be obvious at this point that an InfoWorld review of a software product should be demonstrating it with a screencast and an audio voiceover of the highlights and outside of what i've done that's yet to happen and there are a variety of reasons for that but frankly one of them is i've spent quite a lot of time getting to the point where i'm able to do that stuff competently and reasonably efficiently in terms of time but what creates the tipping point our business models around increasing our motivation to do so right right and i think that's that's the challenge we're all struggling with different business models that would allow us to put the resources and put the effort and put the time towards creating those kind of archives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's no small task. No, it isn't. As much as you can do it with nice little, you know, software and easy things on your Mac these days, it, it still takes time and effort, and that's really the limiting part of the equation. C.J. Rayhill and John Udell. Their whole conversation runs about 40 minutes, and you'll find the link in our show notes at O'ReillyNet.com slash future. Oh, by the way, I should have mentioned this before, but I've been including the show notes in the downloaded MP3 as well. If you use iTunes, you can get info on this program and then look in the Lyrics tab, and you'll see the show notes with all the links included. Next, a conversation with photographer and author Mikkel Oland. We spoke at Macworld back in January. Mikkel's very big on shooting digital images in the RAW format. He explains that it gives you a lot of flexibility downstream and talks about it a lot more in his book, Photoshop CS2 RAW. Now here's something you might not expect. The person that inspired Olin to go digital was Ansel Adams. You think of Ansel Adams as, you know, this beautiful black and white filmed images of national treasures, but as it turns out, he was very interested in what technology could provide. Mickle explains. I started off with film and chemistry. 
And I had the really fortunate good luck in my early 20s, mid-20s actually, uh, to meet a master photographer by the name of Ansel Adams. And he's also mostly recognized as being a very traditional uh, photographer working in black and white, uh, clearly in the world of film and, and chemistry. I interviewed him in 1981 when I was working for a Swedish magazine. And uh, at the end of a very lengthy, very interesting uh, interview, I just kind of threw out the last question. I, he was, I think, almost 80 at that time. I said, what would you do if you were starting all over again? What would you do right now uh, if you were me? And he just, oh, the twinkle in his eye, his face just lit up. And he started talking about what he called electronic photography, or I guess digital photography, in the context of what was going on with JPL and NASA and the Mars photographs, and how now we were able to make images electronic. And by doing so, we could explore uh, the image in, in, in a completely different way than, than he was used to exploring through the traditional methods. And he went on and on about that, and I just my I had no idea what he was talking about. He he was actually a visionary, and I, I found that out subsequently that you know he was involved with the with Polaroid with Dr. Land and a lot of the early developments in color. I mean, you never think of that uh, with Ansel Adams, but he was he was a visionary, and I think if that if he had told me that and and that would have been it, uh, I think I wouldn't have really really got it. Uh, but what happened was, uh, very shortly after uh, talking to him uh, in the summer of 81, Sony announced an electronic still video camera called the Mavica. And I went, oh my God, here it is. Ansel Adams is talking about it, and now Sony's actually bringing out a product. Well, they announced the product. It was actually many years before the product came out. But it was enough to totally capture my imagination. And I would say from that moment on, 25 years ago, I have just been just aiming down that path of, of digital photography. And actually bought the first PCs and then scanners. And, and just it was all very crude, kind of like using pinhole cameras, if you're familiar with that technology. <laughs> it's really basic stuff. But it was really exciting because you could turn images into electronic bits and manipulate them. I was shooting film professionally, uh, shooting for magazines, shooting for books, uh, shooting some commercial work, all in film, of course. But at the same time, frustrated because I'm really tired of the darkroom at this point. My fingertips are all turned kind of brown and scaly looking, and my lungs were starting to hurt from hours and hours and hours in the darkroom. And I was getting excited about the idea of what, what you know we've now called become... It's become becomes what we call a light room instead of a dark room. Um, so it was all it was there on the horizon. I wrote a book in the in the uh, late eighties, early nineties called Digital Photography. It's one of the first books out with that title. And uh, <laughs> in the book, in the for- introduction, I said the future is now. Well, I was a little ahead of myself, like maybe about ten years, I'd say, because although we certainly had made huge strides since I had heard about it in eighty one. To 91, um, we had a long ways to go. I mean, the digital cameras were still really basic and expensive, and uh, the image uh, processing software was pretty basic. Um, what's really exciting me now is 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 raw. <laughs> I get really excited when I talk about raw, and that that's the subject of my of my new book for O'Reilly. 
the raw information is, is the data that comes off the electronic sensor of a digital camera. So this is information that hasn't been processed. It hasn't been assembled, if you will. It's kind of like primordial ooze. It, when you look at it, if you can, you can't really look at it. But if you could, it would look very, there wouldn't be any color. It would just be uh, basically informa- luminous information, uh, uh, kind of uh, very malleable because it's so basic and so, so crude. And what's exciting about that raw data is you can then manipulate it and change it process it the way you want to, as you like it, as opposed to uh, a JPEG or a TIFF. A lot of people, and I think this is a good analogy, they, they consider the raw data as a, as a negative in, in a traditional sense. In, in traditional photography, you had a negative, and then from that negative, you made interpretations, which were the, basically prints. With raw data, you make interpretations, and that interpretation uh, becomes a JPEG or a TIFF or a PSD file. So you have the negative as raw, and then you have the print, which is a, with a JPEG or TIFF or, or other file format. Now, a camera, when you don't save the raw, is doing that process. It's making the print for you and throwing away the negative. So then you may have a very perfectly acceptable print. looks really good, i.e. JPEG or TIFF. But if you want to do something different, if you want to change the color slightly or, or try to bring out a, a better exposure uh, from it, uh, better tone mapping, you don't have the raw data anymore. It's gone. So you're kind of stuck with what, what the camera's made. With Photoshop, you can go in and, and alter colors. And, and, but what you're doing is you're, you're altering the, the information. Because if, if the information's not there, if you've lost all the information, what you're doing is in, in, interpolating. Or, or it, it's never as good as if you had all that information to begin with. And with the raw data, for example, with white balance, the white balance hasn't been set. So there is no, you haven't thrown away all the stuff that's outside of the gamut of the, of the white balance that you've, you've set. So with the raw, you can go in and literally do anything you want in terms of white balance and change it and it's non-destructive you always can go back to that raw data and come back and change it make a different white balance as to as opposed to a tiff or a jpeg when you bring that in photoshop you you can you can change it a little bit but it's it's really truly not going back to the original data you're you don't get anywhere near the quality and you can't it's you're not working with the 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 true pure data to begin with You're, you're working with data that's already kind of fixed. There's, there's a couple things that you don't have to worry about. Uh, when you shoot JPEG, for example, white balance is critical. You really need to get that white balance right on. You also need to get the right color space set, whether it be sRGB or RGB, because uh, again, once you set it as a JPEG, you can't go back. If you've created, a, if you've chosen a narrow gamut like sRGB, uh, you can't go back and, and really truly utilize a full RGB. Uh, it doesn't matter with RAW. So r- with RAW, you come in and set your, your color space later, uh, as you do the white balance setting. With RAW, you also do your sharpening later, too. So the, the sharpening setting on the camera is, it doesn't make any difference. So those, three, those are the three main things that uh, with RAW. Having said that, from a workflow point of view, it, it, it's, it's always a good idea to try to get that stuff right to begin with because it makes it easier downstream when you do the processing rather than have to go back and, and really figure it out later. One thing, though, that's pretty, very exciting with RAW is that uh, when you go to do your tone mapping, you have a lot more um, 
you have a lot more room to maneuver. That you get, you can. Many photographers say two, three, four stops more out of the raw data uh, because it's it's all there to work with. So that that adds another level of flexibility that you wouldn't have otherwise. Obviously, uh, with raw data, you need to, the right software to process it. Not everything will handle raw. Uh, there's a lot of uh, pathways out there, a lot of applications now that will handle raw. And uh, some of the new ones are the sexy ones. Uh, Apple has uh, introduced, for example, Aperture, and then um, Adobe has a new program called Lightroom. Uh, there's been other programs around for a while. The, the, the pathway, the, the, the application that I'm writing about now for the new book, and the one that I actually really find very useful because it, I can do so much in it, is the, is the Photoshop CS2 uh, application, which includes, really, there's three components to it. There's Bridge, there's Camera Raw, which is a plug-in that actually does the kind of the heavy lifting and the work of, of manipulating that raw data. And then Photoshop itself, the traditional application. So when you go in uh, and start using those three environments, you can do so much to your raw uh, data. And there's also ways of streamlining it so that you can go in and fairly quickly uh, process a, a whole multitude of, pro- of raw images and have them ready to go uh, and, and with very good quality. Uh, again, this is, this is something you, I get into in, in the book and how to automate the process of, of, of handling lots of raw information. And then, of course, if you want to make your so-called master print, the most perfect uh, image, you can take a single raw file and just really go to town with it, optimize the tone, the, light, the white balance, the sharpening, uh, get rid of chromatic aberration, all kinds of things that show up, uh, artifacts that show up in digital images. Uh, you have so much control over all that in camera raw or and in Photoshop. The raw data is always there. It is the negative. It's filed away. You save it. You don't throw it away. Please don't throw that raw data away because that is that is something you can always go back to. And as applications get better in the future, I mean, this is a what we're doing now is pretty sophisticated to assemble a, the raw data into a, into a print, if you will. But in the future, I mean, some of the stuff that may be coming down the pipe may be able to take that same raw data that you've saved and do even more amazing things with it. So, yeah, you save your negative, and then you have your prints that you can then set aside as, uh, for printing or putting on the web or whatever you want to do to, to disseminate or share that, that print. Anyone that wants to get the most possibly best picture that they can should be shooting raw. So if you have decided that in in this case when you're shooting a landscape or you're shooting something that you know you really want to get quality out of it, uh, you shoot raw. It's just it's a it's a no brainer. So it's not a matter of being a professional or a serious photographer or an amateur. It's just if you want the best possible picture, shoot raw. Thanks to Michael Olin, CJ Rayhill and John Udell. We'll be at Oscon this week with Daily Report, so we'll be back in two weeks with the next DTF. If you have ideas to share with us, send email to future at O'Reilly.com. I'm Daniel Steinberg. Distributing the Future is a production of O'Reilly Media. Special thanks to David Bettino for composing and performing this theme. Visit David at Batmosphere.com. This program was produced on Mac OS X Tiger using Soundtrack Pro, Bias Peak, and Audio Hijack Pro.